Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha again, as uh, Emily said earlier. We are glad you're here. If you're visiting for the first time, welcome to Hiawatha. Uh, glad to have you guys. Hope you're having a great summer so far. I realized this morning it was almost July, which is always kind of a sad moment. <laughs> July 4th, it's all downhill from there. No, not really. <laughs> Pessimist, I know. <laughs> um, kind of is, but yeah. So, <laughs> hope you're having a good summer, though. Letha and I are actually um, going to Miami this week for a kind of retreat conference thing with Acts 29, one of our church uh, networks we're a part of, and then gone for a little while after that, too, with her family on the East Coast. So, we'll be gone for four Sundays, um, so we'll see you guys in August, I guess, after, after this, but looking forward to a break um, ourselves. So, uh, but anyway, uh, welcome. Uh, we are in, right now, a sermon series throughout the summer called Big Questions. So if you're just visiting us for the first time today, it's a series where we are uh, fielding questions from the church that we've gotten over email or text or personally, and preaching those questions about theology or the Bible, the gospel, sometimes philosophy about our church and why we do things the way we do here. Preachable ones, and so we're making sermons out of these, not just kind of a a factual response or an informational response, but ones that really are undergirded by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a big deal. There's the teaching's great. There's a time to teach for the church, teach facts and so forth. The Bible does that in various places. Jesus does that in his ministry. But preaching's a little bit different. Preaching's a little bit more of a, what are you going to do with this information? How, how does this connect with the, the meta-narrative of everything, the, the Bible and all of history, which is Christ and him crucified, how does it undergird that, or how does that undergird it, uh, as uh, may be the case in different capacities? So, uh, so we're going to preach today on a question we got um, a few weeks back. The, the broader question is, what is common grace? And the specific uh, question, just to flush that out, and I'll define that in a minute if that's a newer term to you, but um, the specific question we got was, in light of this past spring retreats content, we had an all-church retreat in early May, for those of you who didn't uh, know that. We had some content there. In light of that content, I'd like to hear a sermon that further unpacks the concept of common grace. What is it? What are the implications of common grace for the Christian? What are the implications of it for someone who is not a Christian? And so the issue really is about common grace. It's a technical term, uh, if you haven't heard it before, a term that you'll probably find more commonly in a systematic theology text or something like that, uh, maybe, in a, maybe in a church class or something like that too. But it's not a verbatim phrase you see in the Bible. The concept's everywhere, as we'll see today, but if it's a new term, it is a technical one. Uh, we see it uh, mostly, though, just defined in uh, theological dictionaries and things like that. So what I want to do is define it so we're all on the same page and define it in relation to the other kind of main form of grace, divine grace, that God is dispensing to the world, biblically speaking. So we'll start with definitions and then we'll flush that out with some scripture passages here along the way and talk. We're going to really spin off. There's other questions here that the person asked us and spin off on some more questions as well about how do these two kinds of grace relate together. We'll approach it from the 30,000-foot view today. What really is going on when the Bible talks about general grace, kind of common grace, but specific, special saving grace as well? How do they relate? What are the dangers of just valuing one of them and not both? How do they relate to each other? Uh, what are the benefits of holding them both in proper, healthy gospel balance? What are some benefits that come from that that the scriptures teach on uh, topically elsewhere? And, uh, and then uh, just drive it home after that. So a lot of questions today that I'll kind of reframe the issue around uh, those questions and, and give us a, a better view of it. So we'll start with definitions. So first, common grace. Common grace is God's universal Key phrase here, non-saving grace in which blessings are given to humanity for physical sustenance, pleasure, learning, beauty, etc. as expressions, another key uh, term there, expressions of God's goodness. So things, it could be anything. It says here for physical sustenance, so food, uh, it says pleasure, learning as well. It's actually a really good definition, uh, but it could be anything. To expand out of that, a hamburgers, a really good hamburger, a steak. Uh, is, is common grace, a good beer, a good glass of wine, uh, camping trips, the mountains, medicine. Every time medicine works is common grace, a great sunrise, friendships, and the varied grace dispensed through a really loving, true, generous, sacrificial friendship interpersonally is from God as well. Springtime, the flowers in bloom, squirrel repellents, you know, you name it, pretty much anything. But also our abilities. So uh, this is also something you'll see when it's defined in systematic theology texts and so forth. 
When we talk about common grace, it's universal. This is not just for Christians speaking about gifts and talents that God might give specifically to the church, but it's, it's for all. Christian or not, God's common grace is kind of this big umbrella over um, all people wherever they are spiritually. So it's our abilities as well. We think about people like that have had great sports skill, for example, like Michael Jordan's basketball skill historically uh, is common grace. Not a Christian, but uh, that's something underneath this definition we would look at and say that's from God. He did not have that. He wasn't chose to be born as, you know, a, a very skilled person. He worked for it to a degree, but he also was given a lot being born into a certain context where basketball might have been valued, given the opportunities he was given, also a gift, but also just his sheer uh, God-given ability to play basketball really well and to have the eyes uh, for the ball on the court and so forth, and he's uh, just unmatched in a lot of ways. So we'd look at that and say, though he's not a Christian, those skills are from God. It kind of be in the spirit of, if you guys remember, when Jesus almost, uh, about a few hours really before Jesus was crucified, in the gospel accounts, it, it recounts this interaction Jesus has with Pilate's who's a non-Christian, a very ungodly world. He's a Roman governor of, of the province Judea, over Judea, during the day. And it, his interactions with him, and at one point, Pilate says, Jesus is remaining silent for much of this interaction, choosing to keep his mouth shut. But at one point, Pilate says, don't answer me. Don't you know that I have authority over you to crucify you or to set you free? And it's cool that Jesus, at this point, decides to kind of break his rule of silence a bit and speak up into that for his sake, and for our sake as readers to know something about the, the circumstance, the situation, but also something about common grace more broadly here too. Because Jesus replies and says, you would have no authority over me if it was not given you by God. You would not be a governor. You would not have skill to organize and to bring order and to lead. You would not be born. You would not have had privilege to be here at all if God did not give you all of those things, non-Christian. doesn't use those, those terms, but you know what I'm saying is you are not close to God, you don't necessarily believe in him either, but God is still commonly dispensing grace to you. Everything you have in life, Pilate, in this moment, is only there because God has given it to you commonly. So that's common grace. The other kind of grace to juxtapose this to, and they're related kind of like two puzzle pieces that fit close together, you can't talk about the one, without the other, and, and that is special grace or saving grace. So definitionally, special grace is God's gracious favor for salvation on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ, the grace of God given specifically to those whom God is saving in contrast to common grace. So this would be grace associated with conversion, someone becoming a Christian, receiving that special grace of God that delivers from sin uh, and uh, so forth. We'll talk about that more as, as we go on. Like we do every single Sunday, we sing about it, take communion in light of it, preach it. It is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. All right, so what's the relationship between the two? You can kind of get a glimpse of it here in the definitions, but uh, the relationship between the two is essentially the order is extremely important here to get, and that is common grace kind of precedes, but it's probably better, better to say that it undergirds or kind of supports or points to special grace or saving grace. It's a whisper of the more clear shout of God's special and saving grace in his son, Jesus Christ. So in a table form here, on the left we have uh, common grace is general for all, but uh, saving grace is specific only for Christians, the church, or anybody who believes and, and becomes a part of God's people. Common grace expresses God's goodness, but special grace is the essence of God's goodness. Common grace is secondary and lesser. Special grace and saving grace is primary and greater. Common grace is a whisper of the special grace, which is the shout of God's goodness and love. Common grace, again, is non-saving. It's non-salvific. Special grace is salvific. And to get even more specific, common grace refers to the good things of earth, uh, primarily physical things. And uh, special grace is focused on Jesus and him crucified and raised three days later for our justification. So a really great friendship then on, on the left side, which we talked about before, being an example of common grace, has no power to save us from our sins. But it can remind us of the fact that Jesus is friend of sinners. If that friend gives us something generously, it can point us to the fact that it's God's common grace allowing that generosity to happen at all, and we see it as that, and we're aware of that, then it can be then a whisper of how much more generous Jesus is for us on the cross. 
and so forth. So at, at the spring retreat this year, if you weren't here, uh, I talked about that earlier. It's the form of the question that was given to us. We asked the question, how is God's saving grace reflected commonly in different parts of the artistic culture around us? So how has God gifted writers and directors and cinematographers and musicians and poets, even, non, even especially non-Christian ones, to help tell a gospel story that they're not even intending to tell? It could just be good art that benefits and inspires and beautifies like God does for us and in that way remind us of God. Or it could have a particular special grace gospel bent to it in how it's constructed or pictured. So the Edwards uh, listened to Beyonce and you too, right? And I don't want to pick Beyonce first. You did, so there you go. Uh, and literature group, we, talked, we looked at Shakespeare and um, C.S. Lewis and uh, the movie group uh, looked at some clips like from Little Miss Sunshine. And we were asking, what's the, where's the gospel? How is the gospel undergirding the, the story? How's the storyline here a reflection, a whisper? How's the common grace that, that's being dispensed by God to these writers and, and poets? How is God gifting them commonly in general, universal kind of way to be a whisper of this more specific grace that gets a lot more clear in the Bible. The church's mantra, the church's song, the church's message. So to give you more examples, uh, that's uh, where, we, where we went. But one of the key uh, definitional phrases here that I really want you to remember is uh, the second line, or second row, which is common grace expresses God's goodness, but special grace is the essence of God's goodness. So Common things that can express, but they aren't, you, you can't really have, as the Bible defines them and shows them, they, they interact, but they're not the same thing, in other words. So one can express and be a whisper, the other uh, enacts that goodness and actually is the essence of it. And so God is trying to tell a story with both. God works commonly in physical, broad ways and specifically. And we do too a lot of times in life. We, this is, we're made in his image. And so a lot of times in life, we will do this as well. We'll work in broad ways and specific ways, but those ways kind of relate to each other. We see this play out in life uh, in, in many forms. But it's also uh, one last thing here, kind of definitionally. I mentioned this at the spring retreat, if you were there for that. But it's what some people have called a, a biblical form of panentheism. Uh, panentheism is a religious and philosophical worldview that means that there's a bit of God in all things. Not to be confused with pantheism, which would say that you and I are God, or that pew you're sitting in actually is God, or that these oak trees out here in our boulevard are God. Panentheism uh, actually pulls back from that a bit and says that there is a bit of God or a piece of him inside all things. And, and so, and panentheists, it's rare to find a Christian that would say, I'm a panentheist. Uh, most aren't. So there's, there's unbiblical extremes to this, to be clear. Uh, most times when you read about it, it will be a very, there'll be an unbiblical slant to it. But there is a biblical form of it, and that is to acknowledge common grace. It is to acknowledge God's sovereign providential care over all things. It's to acknowledge that none of this existed until he said exist. Uh, it's kind of like uh, some of the Renaissance painters used to paint themselves into these kind of storyboard-like paintings. They're kind of in the background looking on, you know, with the disciples or something, or if they're painting about the... It's just really cool. There's, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but it's almost like that, that God painted reality, and he painted himself into it. So things like chairs and oak trees and other people being kind of a primary thing, because we're in the actually image of God more than animals or more than seasons or more than the sun or things like that. But sun rises and, and season change and plant life and things like that. Uh, coming to life every year in the spring, perennials basically die but then come to life and come out of the ground and bloom. These, these mini storylines in, in a variety of ways have a, a panentheistic bit of God in them. They aren't God. God created them, but he gives us a common grace whisper about his special saving grace in them, all of which we're not going to talk about today, but I kind of hinted at how some of those things might tie in to the gospel. But, um, and back at the retreat, we did a lot of that as well. We're not going to actually take a lot of specific examples of these things today, and, and I want to back up and really give the bigger, broader picture of what this really is and the broad, sweeping benefits of what, what, what we get when we value these two things together and not just one of them uh, to, to the extremes. So before we go into those benefits, really quick, uh, what are the dangers of going to the extremes? The extremes just being denying one of these types of grace. So um, if someone would say that there is no such thing as common grace, only special saving grace in Christ, 
uh, aside from just being unbiblical, uh, that, that would lead to beliefs like uh, this. Finding joy in the stuff of earth is sinful. Everything in the world is evil entirely without qualification. It would lead to an action like taking pride in our physical abilities because we believe at the end of the day that we accomplish things in life, that we work hard for them and we earn something. So we, we take pride in that. Not that that's always wrong, but we take an excessive amount, we could, and we'd have contempt for people that don't measure up to our standards in kind of a religious uh, kind of way. So it leads to that as well. It would be kind of a dualistic worldview of seeing God owns the spiritual, but he doesn't have much to do with the physical. And so there's a strong dualistic separation between the two. Too much of a divide, much more of a divide than the Bible actually makes. And then it would lead to ultimately fundamentalistic forms of interacting with people. We'd have contempt for them. We'd look down on them. We would have anger. We'd have lots of envy if they were better than us, lots of jealousy if they were better than us at things. Uh, because we'd see them as accomplishing something on their own. Maybe some of the very things we're trying to accomplish, but haven't quite been able to, to the same degree. So those are some of the many dangers of going to the extremes. This one, denying common grace, but only seeing God's saving grace as the only kind of grace at work in the world and the only kind of grace that exists biblically. On the flip side of that, to say that there's no saving grace, but only common grace would lead to beliefs like, Goodness actually is, to be a good person is salvation. Or experiencing common grace means that we must be right with God. Or to flush that out some more, it might be this kind of thought would come to mind. If God is dispensing grace commonly to this person, even if it's just helping that person be a really good painter, then the person must be okay in God's eyes salvifically. Guess see how that works out? It's basically, if you don't have two kinds, if it's only a common grace, then God's doing these common good things in people's lives. It must mean that they're okay as it pertains to, to sin and just there's evil in the world too, but it must mean that, that they're okay. As long as God is kind of commonly doing something in their life, then, then they are all right. So it leads to universalism, all people are saved, inclusivism, and liberalism here, meaning more emphasis on the physical than the spiritual. And really, this, this perspective doesn't treat sin as that big a deal at all because sin doesn't, doesn't have to be actually addressed. It, it just matters that we kind of get along and just have some degree of uh, comfort in life and some degree of goodness in our lives and, and things like that. So liberalism in that sense of the word, uh, though it could be defined differently as well. More emphasis on the physical than the spiritual, and sin is no big deal. All are saved. Because God's commonly dispensing grace to all. So those are the dangers, the, the, the uber-conservative and the uber-liberal uh, extreme uh, of, this, of this matter, of the two kinds of grace, uh, as opposed to uh, seeing the two as coexistent and the one being better than the other, saving grace being the more primary form of grace that we all, that we all need. But the lesser one still being important as a pointer to that, to that more prominent one. So then the, the last big question I want to spend the rest of our time on here is uh, with, all this, with all these asides in place to kind of frame the issue, what are the benefits of understanding these two kinds of grace in a balanced, gospel-centered manner? What, what kind of benefits or byproducts come from understanding both in proper relation to one another? And there are lots. I was thinking about this this past week and writing down a bunch. There are three, though, big ones that kind of relate to each other, so I'm going to repeat myself here a little bit, but three things. Humility, and I'll just say them now, we will come back to them. Humility is the, probably the biggest, uh, an, imp, an impetus towards missional living and, and loving unchurched people who have not heard yet about Christ and just living around them and befriending them and, and loving them and serving them in Christ's name. And uh, there, there's a few things we'll spin off on on that second one, two, three more things, but I'll get to that and the third thing, though, is gospel comprehensiveness or joy, just getting joy. So I'll talk about that to close. But the first thing, going back, is humility. Uh, and it's, there's two angles on it, humility towards ourselves, uh, uh, kind of subjectively, and then more of an objective sense as we look uh, to others who are just better than us at things, having humility in those contexts. So um, first of all, towards ourselves. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what do you, this is speaking to the church, what do you have who are, by the way, really prideful people? If you know a little bit of background about the church in Corinth in the first century, they really, really, really wrestled with arrogance, 
like all of us. And so Paul addresses that, and he uses the gospel of Jesus Christ to tweak it and try to correct the problem uh, that was running rampant in that baby church in the first century. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So what do you have that you did not receive? The implied answer is, well, nothing. Everything in life has been given to you. Nothing, nothing has been earned. Even if it looks like you've worked really hard for something, that's the means by which God has given. So, so then he says, the follow-up question is great. If you received it, why do you boast if you did not receive it? So you can see that the, the answer to understanding that, uh, the answer to our boasting problem, our arrogance problem, is understanding that all things are given. And the flip is true. If we don't believe that all things are given, we're going to be arrogant. We're going to boast, right? That was their problem. They thought they actually were doing things on their own and actually accomplishing things. And they thought that before God, before people, they were something when they were nothing. And that led to arrogance. It led, led to boasting. But the solution was to back up common grace here, right? And saving grace. It applies to both. God gives and dispenses both. He's, he is the par excellence giver of the cosmos. He gives everything constantly. Our breath right now is a gift from him. And so if we really believe that, if we're basking in this, this type of comprehensive understanding of grace, it breeds humility uh, personally. On the other side of things, it gives us humility towards others as well. So when, when we understand these things, we don't look at other people's abilities and uh, just think, wow, look what they did. We might say that, and that's fine. It's not wrong. To, we shouldn't have to change the way we talk about these things all the time entirely because it looks like they, they did something. But rather, we say, look what God did, ultimately. Behind saying, wow, good job, we're actually saying God's common grace is really being reflected here. Look what God did. Based not on their moral efforts, based not on their inherent sense of goodness, but on God's choice and his mercy and grace. So what this does then, if you guys think about, think about yourself in a particular context where you're seeing this in a, an unchurched person or church alike, if you really believe God is the author of their talents and abilities and gifts, it really protects us from envy, right, and jealousy. And it helps us actually, like the Bible tells us to in one place, rejoice with those who rejoice. We're supposed to do that. It's really hard to do, right? Rejoice with those who are finding great blessing and happiness and comfort, who are winning competitions, whatever that might be. Be happy for them. Rejoice. And the way we're able to do that, and I think the only way, is to back up and get the big picture and say, that actually wasn't them, that was God. Because if we don't have that worldview, we'll feel this inherent initial sense of competitiveness and comparison. Play the comparison game. And we'll think, well, they're... I'm either envious that they're better than, than me or I have contempt for them that they're not as good as I, as I am. That's really the two roads we'll eventually, eventually get to without the principle of common grace uh, at, at work and special grace, both being given. So that's the first one. I'm going to just leave it at that because I'll weave some more of that into these latter couple of things. But the, the second thing is, uh, the second benefit we get when we really understand common and special grace in, in proper relationship is um, an impetus towards loving unchurched people, an impetus towards missional living and loving unchurched people. So I have three spinoff things here and I want to talk about uh, that I want to address really practical things, deeply theological but deeply practical at the same time that help us know how to live and how to talk theologically and how to be free and, and to kind of let our, let our guards down around a lost world. I think that the idea of common grace really helps us in all these things. So uh, the first thing is the image of God, the imago Dei, uh, the image of God. So w when we apply these dual filters of there's two things going on here, remember, common and special grace, kind of like you have two lenses and you're holding them both up at the same time, viewing the world through both lenses. When we apply it to this doctrine and look at the image of God, people being made in God's image, we see two things, two angles on this idea that in the beginning, in Genesis 1:27, God says, all people are going to be made in my image. And Adam and Eve were, and all of us through them were made in God's image. It became marred when we rejected God and rebelled against him and sinned, uh, but nonetheless, God's image, the scriptures teach, uh, 
remains, at least partially. But then as the story goes on, when Christ comes in and saves, uh, saves people, in Romans 8.29 it says that there's a special kind of image given to the church. And it's not like God is fixing the marred image of God problem. Like when you're saved, those of you who are Christians, God didn't just reverse the fact that the image of God within you was marred. He actually brought you to another place, a different place altogether, and that's the image of God's Son. Romans 8 uh, gets at this when it says, um, but only those, uh, sorry, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So not the image of God, the image of Christ. See the difference there? I mean, it's subtle, but the church specially is in Christ's image. The, the world commonly is in the image of God. You guys see, if we apply the lens filters there, you guys see the, the difference? Everybody, Christian or not, is in God's image, albeit marred. Only the church, especially when they're saved from their sins and find the forgiveness of God, are being remade into Jesus' image. It's a special kind of salvific grace and image that the scriptures uh, teach. So when we have that in mind, I think it actually really does, going back to the main thing here, which is an impetus towards living with an outward focused bent and and loving unchurched people. Uh, One of the things it does is that when we interact with them, when we look at them, we're expecting to get a glimpse of God somehow. If all people are in the image of God, uh, no matter who they are, we should expect, we won't always get this, we should expect to look at them, and if we know them, you know, even just more than a moment, uh, especially long-term, of course, but even just more than a moment, we should expect to get some kind of glimpse of him. Could be in their hobbies, their profession, how they did something kind for you, how they listened to you, how they were patient with you. Some glimpse of the character of God in them, even though they're not saved. And so what I think that does then is it gives us a little bit of a less, as we minister to the world, a little bit less of a us versus them mentality and more of a God loves these people. He's already at work in their life and he's not that far from them. He, they are very far in their sin from him and yet in a common grace kind of way, he's not that far, though they've rebelled grievously against him. And furthermore, because it's not, again, a competition we expect to learn something from uh, the unchurched. And we're not surprised even when we run into some of them who are just plain better people than we are. What this doctrine teaches us is there will be non-Christians in your life that you'll meet that will be very, very just better people than you on almost every count. And that shouldn't shock you. That that shouldn't be out of left field. Like the, the, the unchurched, the world might look at that and say Christians are hypocrites or see this is proof that the church is just bunk. It's just nonsense. Uh, but actually, the, the right approach is to say, no, that actually proves grace, because grace is given. Grace is given to the unlikely. Grace is given to the outcast. Uh, grace is given to those who don't even looking for it. Grace is undeserved. And so if that's the case, special grace and common grace, then we should expect to see, not all the time, but at times, people who are not yet saved, but God is commonly working in their life in a way that, wow, they just love people more than I do. This isn't to kind of give an out, you know, for transformation. And Christians do grow. We have the Holy Spirit. We are different distinctly from the world. And in general, that actually might not be the case. But a lot of times in life, that will be because of common grace. You guys see the the tension here going back and forth? Because there's two kinds of grace, we'll kind of be doing this all the time as we view the world in terms of looking at people and what they're like and and how they're loving the world or not or just what their character is and and so forth. So because of grace, we can, we can have that, uh, that expectation when we, when we meet and love and interact with people who are not yet, not yet saved. It ultimately, let, ultimately lets our guards down, gives us humility, and just affects how we look at them. A created being like, like us who is being given to God all the time commonly, they just don't know yet how much he wants to give them in Christ. So see that how much that will free us up to just see the, the image of God in them. But then, no, at the same time, though, that's the one side, the common side. The special side, though, will also simultaneously embolden us to preach the gospel to them because common grace is partial. Common grace is partial. They could be the best whatever in the world commonly, and God is involved in that, but they're not still saved from their sins. 
So it's, it's a whisper. It's insufficient. It's meant to point beyond itself to something more precise, namely the cross. It's meant to get people there, to show God as giver and how he's non-partial and how he's patient and how he's a, a, a talent dispenser and how he's kind of like all of those talents if they're good things and, and so forth. I was thinking this, uh, so it emboldens us to preach. And I, I was, as I was writing this sermon this past week, I was in a coffee shop um, on the Riverview down here and it was about noon and I was benefiting from the sun. It was light out because I could see. I'm just thinking about this imagery as it relates to common grace because I was benefiting from the light of the sun, but I wasn't out in it at the same time, if that makes sense. So, if that makes sense. So it's possible to benefit from the sun partially, but not yet fully be out in the sun, kind of getting vitamin D from it and actually warming our skin and feeling its warmth and seeing a little bit better. You guys see the difference? So for Christians then, we, we can look at, oh, you're benefiting from God's common grace, but you're not out in the sun yet. You're not getting the vitamin D of Christ's blood pulsed into your veins yet. You're not becoming a new creation yet. You're not truly out in the light looking at God becoming a worshiper of him yet. Huge difference. It's actually massive. They relate, but the, but the difference is almost not even comparable in terms of how much we benefit from from God's grace. We have to move from the one to the other. And so, with this image of God idea, common grace, all are in God's image, but it's not enough. It's not enough. It's marred. They need, all people need to become in Christ's image by having their sins forgiven, to, to become one of his children, to resemble him because his spirit is breathed into us and it, and it resembles us. So, we'll have both these lenses as we, as we minister. Second, it, it's, uh, it, it also affects how we talk about sin with them. This is a really important one, uh, especially for those of you who are, uh, you know, and I, and I would put myself in this camp, so I'm not just uh, throwing stones here, pointing fingers, but who, uh, who know maybe a little bit too much about sin for our own good. Uh, but, uh, but nonetheless, talking about total depravity, uh, talking about sin, and, and the, the idea, the maxim here is, with common and special grace, both in mind, is that when we talk about sin, things can express, and people can express God's goodness commonly and at their core be evil at the same time. If this is true, common and special saving grace, there's two kinds, then both can be true simultaneously because both are all the time. Things can express God's goodness commonly, but at their core be evil at the same time. So, when we see a non-Christian volunteer or with a great cause or give even sacrificially, it can be a common expression of God's grace, right? God's commonly allowing them to do that. He's at work in their life. But simultaneously, it can be not motivated by his special grace at the same time and thereby kind of be a type of religious morality that has at its core evil, self-deifying intent, so it's kind of why, I was thinking about this as a, in a parenting way. I'm sure all you parents can, can relate. Think about this all the time, actually, when it comes to, to sin. It's why we can look at our kids and say, you are a good, beautiful kid or handsome kid. And yet, in our minds, we know that they're just wicked at the same time, you know? Like as a parent, I want to say, you are just such my son. You're such a, just a good boy or nice job or you did a really good thing there, you know, to your sisters. And, and that's common grace, that's... Because of common grace, that's good and true and right, right? But because of the need for saving grace and because of this issue of sin that needs to be, needs to be uh, a part of the story because it is, uh, they're also just wicked at the same time. Common grace, but not sufficient grace, you could say. But this is how we view the world, right? This affects how we view the world. Because of common grace, we can move towards lost people carefully even seeing a whisper of God in them and their good works. Yet because of other biblical truths, like Romans 3 says, no one does good, period. No one ever does good. Like, What do you do with that? Well, there's common grace. The world is not as bad as it could be if God wasn't commonly dispensing some, some kind of patient grace in the world, allowing things to, for his glory and fame to, to exist in, in a good, safe, kind of comfortable, peaceful manner. But at the same time, no one does good ultimately. Do you see how this affects how we talk to people? We have to have both. And if we leave, just, if we leave one, 
one, one lens down and only bring up the one will be a little bit incomplete with how we talk about sin and thusly, ultimately, grace. But when it says this, uh, and the need for special grace to be given because of that, and because of our propensity to think that we can do enough good to satisfy God's standards, we also need, as we look at people, to see in them spiritual insufficiency. When people believe, you know, the, the works, maybe the works themselves, their, how they're volunteering in the world, what they're giving to society, how they live as parents and as friends and just citizens in this uh, city, state, and country. People believe those works are making them good people, making themselves good people, and that they're better people than others uh, who more obviously sin. Uh, we, we, see, we have to press in this need for something more than, than common grace. So overall, what it does then is, both these graces, it allows us to see glimpses of good in the world when everything is totally depraved at the same time. We're amazed as Christians at God's common graces, yet we're not overwhelmed or too elated at the same time because we know there's something better than common grace. So we're not knocked off our feet in elation over common grace. We're amazed at God through it, but through it we get to someone else, namely Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the special saving grace that we need to be saved from the pit of hell. So again, it's, 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 it's awesome, kind of shocking and strange, and, but really equipping for us as Christians to have, this, it's really practical. Understanding grace comprehensively gives us this freedom to see good in the world that God dispenses commonly, but also label all things at their core evil. And because of that, people can't overcome it. They, they, they can't, we're, we're too dead, we're too giving ourselves over to evil all the time, the Bible says elsewhere, all people, uh, to come out of, that, uh, out of that ourselves. And if we just think that everything is given, if we really think that as Christians, just as people, if you're not a Christian today too, if you just think that everything is given, commonly or specially, if grace is always given, then what's taken off the table completely? Working for grace, Right? Either we receive grace or we reject it. What's taken off the table completely is you save yourselves by what you do because God gives everything. Either we acknowledge that, we rejoice in that, we receive that, ultimately the gift of God's Son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins, but commonly as well, or we just reject the idea, right? But what we cannot say is that there is some kind of you know, alternate universe here where some people get to heaven based on what they do, good things. Because only all good things are given. No good things come from us, ultimately. So we can rejoice and thank and acknowledge and contextualize and see God in those things, but one thing we can't say is keep doing that because it's in you, it's from you, and if you do it enough, you'll get into the kingdom. Bible never says it, and we can't say it if it's a given, generous gift of God. Works-based righteousness, being a good person all the way into heaven, off the table completely. We acknowledge God as giver, generous lover of our souls, or we reject. That's the two options we have. Constantly, Christian and not. Today, maybe for the first time you're hearing that, or maybe it's for the millionth as a Christian, that is what you're confronted with today. Do I see God as the giver of grace in my life, and in what ways am I seeing it, or am I, am I rejecting it, and becoming arrogant and envious and contempt-filled through it. All right, third thing here with the second point is just a couple words on this. Contextualization, which I'm just using to mean being in the world, but not of it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 25 to 26 uh, says, this is again to the same Corinthian church in the first century, the Apostle Paul says, greater argument here, which I'll explain, but he says to them, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question in the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So just to explain this, uh, in Corinth in the first century, the church was concerned about whether or not to eat meat that had previously been used <clears throat> in pagan rituals, uh, sacrificed to idols. And some people in the church were saying, if it has then it's kind of tainted and we shouldn't eat it. We should abstain from eating that kind and just get the, you know, the fresh Jesus-y organic one that's next to it or something. But, um, 
Paul's response is actually, uh, he, and he actually, it's complicated, and I'm, I'm, I don't have any time to summarize it, it's so complicated, but he basically says, yes, but no, but yes. <laughs> That's why it's complicated. But he basically says, eat, it's fine to eat that meat, but be careful, but again, be very free and just eat whatever at the same time. So it's kind of like, what are you saying, you know? But basically, this is one of his yes responses when he says in 1 Corinthians 10, eat whatever is sold. Don't even ask where it comes from. Why? Look at the for, the because. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns all. It's his meats. He says elsewhere in this argument that there's no such thing as other gods anyway. Or de- Demons are real fallen angels, these evil beings that exist, but they're not really, they don't kind of take, claim ownership over the meat when they're worshipped through it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's the reason why we should eat whatever is before us and, and partake. And so what common grace then does, and this is again a common thing, right? We're looking at all things belong to him, including steaks. He's saying uh, common grace then frees us up to, to live in the world and to enjoy it as a gift and to enjoy it around unchurched people. It frees us from too much withdrawal. And sometimes we are to withdrawal if things, we're obviously speaking about morally neutral things here. If things are not morally neutral, withdrawal is certainly back on the table. But when it comes to food, for example, because food's being brought up here, when it comes to food, uh, you know, Christians, we should not ultimately be known for fattish diets. Because at the core of our belief system is not a type of food. It's Jesus. And actually, a lot of the New Testament's kind of given over to this. And it's fine. If you're, you know, gluten-free this or paleo that, praise God. That's great. It's not, you shouldn't feel bad for that. But you should feel uh, conviction over the fact if you are pushing that on other people and saying this is the right Christian thing to do. Because at the core of our belief system is, actually in Romans 14, it says uh, that at the core of the Christian faith is not, is not food, it's not what we eat or drink or what days we observe. It's righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's, that's, that's the core of, core of our faith. And so what this does is it frees us up to eat anything, to, to receive, to thank God for it, to be partake in morally neutral ways, obviously. If it's sin, it's not the will of God, we withdraw. But in morally neutral ways, to partake, to, to enter in. Uh, to be a part of things, to move towards a lost world, to kind of value what they value, to, because it's from God. God says, that's mine. And the world might say, no, this is unchristian, kind of like raise the flag and stick it right in a you know, pound of ground beef and say, this is not right to eat. But we say as Christians, no, that actually belongs to him. The whole earth is the Lord's. And so it frees us up to eat and to go places, to watch things, to watch, watch ourselves in those things, be careful but to move out into the world and, and actually partake of them in the right, most human way possible, as though God actually gave them, which is what, not how the world's eating and drinking and enjoying creation. They're enjoying it as though it just is. Maybe it is God, or maybe there is no God and just kind of exists, and they're just enjoying it. That's not a truly human way to live and to enjoy. What the gospel frees us up to see is that this is common grace, and God's grace is over all things, and he owns it all. And we can enjoy it as kind of an avenue to, to getting to Christ, who is our true food. Jesus says, this is kind of cool, the Bible says, eat all things, because God, God owns everything. Elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus says, I am your true food. If you partake of me, you'll never be hungry again. If you drink of the water I give you, you will never thirst again. Isn't that awesome? Talk about cool, like common grace, special grace dynamic there. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Eat, rejoice, partake, move towards a lost world, dine with them, love them. At the same time, devalue it in place of Christ because he's your true spiritual food. He's the special grace. He's the saving grace that you all take. Be pointed to that through the good, common grace, tasty foods we're on topic of food. It could be anything, but tasty foods that God has to give, has to give us. All right, so that was all spinoff of the second thing, the impetus, the benefit of the impetus towards missional living that we get from understanding common grace well. The third and final thing is gospel comprehensiveness or joy. Uh, two things here. Uh, one, I think this gives us more joy because we see Jesus in more places. 
Isaiah 42.5 says, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, this is the key, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. That's incredible, you guys. Christian or not here today, that air you're breathing right now, that's from the Lord. The fact that your diaphragm is pushing up your lungs right now, the fact that your heart is beating right now, every single time is because God is allowing it. It's a gift. Isn't that incredible? I mean, this is common grace stuff. But at the same time, it can really tell us a lot about what he thinks of us. I think about this one a lot after I just really blow it in sin. And I, and I feel unnecessarily, because I'm a Christian, I'm saved by the blood of Jesus, but unnecessarily distant from him, I think about this verse and I think, well, I'm still breathing. That's something. He must be patient with me. He, he, I don't deserve to take this breath, that's for sure. But God is allowing it. He's giving the grace for me to do it. But that's not enough, right? Where does it point me? It points me elsewhere to remember that I need the breath of Christ within me. In John 20, after Jesus rises from the dead, it says that Jesus breathed on his disciples. Did you read this last week, Spence? Uh, breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Breath and newness and the Holy Spirit of God living in saved people, making us into the image of God's Son is what's true for us as Christians, but breath is a piece to that. So physically, we're breathing right now commonly. Specially, we need Jesus to effectively, when we believe in him, breathe on us and make us new in himself. But that can point to, can point to this. God gives breath to people on. Do you guys know this? Do you think this way on a daily basis? You should. Because you're robbing yourself of joy when you don't. It's a moment where you're not thinking, God is loving me and commonly gracing me right now by allowing my eyes to work, by allowing me to wake up in the morning, by giving me a job, a car, a shelter over my head, a family, friends, church community, a great dinner, some kind of breakfast, whatever it is. All of that is undeserved merit, commonly. We should see a glimpse of love there and care that gets us across the bridge to where he really shows us care, really goes to work and backs the dump truck up and dumps out grace and love like it's never been done before in the world, and that is through his son. So, so again, more joy because we see Jesus in more places, but again, the second thing is more joy because we see Jesus especially at the cross and in community with his people. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.10 says, Indeed, in this case, what once, speaking of the Old Testament glory that's kind of faded now because the New Testament has come with more glory in Jesus, but so kind of cryptic here, but hang with me. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. The glory of the cross surpasses uh, common grace. And so I think then uh, Christians who think in a biblically balanced manner about God's varied grace are, are just going to be happier, humbler people because they know that God gives us breath and sunrises and laughter and great food and, and acts of kindness. And the second thing, because he himself in his son is much better than all of those things. See how we get joy from both? We get joy from the common, but joy from realizing that the common don't really work all the time. They're kind of unreliable. We get hungry again four hours after we eat a really good, really good dinner, or maybe less. They don't really work. We need a greater grace that when Jesus says, you'll never thirst again when you drink from the fountain of life, that's the kind of water I want. A cold glass of water, common. The Jesus water, special. So the one can get us here. We, we've got to view the world that way. If we don't, we're on the risk of going to the dangerous extremes like we talked about before, but we also just flat out rob ourselves of happiness. We rob ourselves of joy. We rob ourselves of God getting more fame and glory in our lives. One last verse I don't have on screen. I forgot to put it up there, but if you want to write it down, look at it later. Uh, Galatians 1, 3 to 5, I'll just read this. talks about the special grace of God given. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And there is absolutely nothing common about that whatsoever. 
it is quite special. It is quite unique. It's quite particular. It's only for those who reach out and, and grab it and say, I want that kind of grace. Common is good, but not great. It's insufficient. What I need is deliverance from my sin. That's my bigger problem. It's my bigger hunger. It's my bigger type of loneliness. It's my bigger shame. It's my bigger darkness. It's my bigger all those things. It, it, sin is. And what I need is a, a remedy for that primarily, much more than I do uh, the physical things, the smaller things of life. It's special, but it is, as the scriptures say indeed, it's only dispensed to those who have faith in his son. So I invite you all to do that today for the first or thousandth time to put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin and receive his special saving grace uh, on the heels of maybe years of receiving his common grace and not even really realizing that you were. He loves you. He's been patient with you. You're here for a reason to hear that he's the only way back to God. He died in your place and, uh, and he's been patient with you. So, so believe in him today as we respond with a couple of songs. Let me pray though before that. God, thank you so much for a chance to uh, talk theologically about uh, common and saving special grace. Uh, thank you that we can talk definitionally about it, talk about it in a spectrum kind of way, uh, talk about it as it relates to the gospel, and, and uh, talk about the benefits that we get to when we really value both and not just one. So help us, God, as a church and as individuals this week to view the world through both lenses, to be freed and humble and happy through both, and to, be, and to be protected from our arrogance and pride and envy and jealousy and contempt uh, from not seeing the world through both, especially uh, the idea that you have given both, uh, God. We have not earned either. So save us from those types of byproducts, those dangerous, dangerous byproducts of believing that we've earned our way to you. You give and you give and you give and you give and you give. You are so generous, so full of love and patience towards lost people who constantly, constantly take you for granted and, and, and think that we're actually breathing on our own right now, that somehow we made our own hearts or determined the timing of, of the circumstances that we'd be born into when we were born. How ridiculous that is, God. You have given every, if nothing in our life has been earned, everything has been given. Incredible love for lost, rebellious people like us, God. Save us afresh today, especially when we remember, as, as Galatians 1 said, that you gave yourself on a cross for our sins and that we have grace in that, grace and peace in that. Thank you for giving constantly to rebels like us. In Jesus' name, amen.